Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book six of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stanzas one through four. Let's start the show. We start the book immediately where Wolves of the Kala left off, with Susanna slash Mia off in New York City and the rest of the quartet trying to track her down. Roland calls on the Manny to help use their magic to open the door in the cave. Roland and Eddie head one way, while Jake, Father Callahan, and Oi go another. In 1991, New York City, a stunned Trudy Damascus witnesses Mia coming through the door and questions her sanity. Mia and Susanna work together to try to figure out how and when to have the chap they are carrying. Jay, we are entering the end game here. We are in the penultimate book of this Dark Tower series. Yeah, this is exciting. And this is book six of the seven book series and the seventh book that we have covered for our show. So hooray us. Hooray us. Yes. So um, exciting stuff. We're glad to have all of you aboard for this and glad you make, made it this far. And we're turning the corner and, and heading into the end game. And things are coming fast and furious. And we'll talk a little bit about that with the book introduction, which is something we like to do when we start a new book. So after, Jay, you were a person who waited between books in the past, you know, six, seven years at a time sometimes. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we get this one, which is came just seven months after Wolves of the Kala. And then between this book and the next book, there were only three months until The Dark Tower came out after this. Yeah, it was practically just all at once. I mean, in Stephen King terms, or at least in Dark Tower terms, these books were all released on the same day for all intents and purposes. Right, exactly. They came came fast. And from a, a writing standpoint, King worked on these pretty quickly. So we know the exact dates. He started this on December 8th, 2001, and finished it on March 24th, 2002. Um, and then he went back and did his revisions and finished those in May of 2003. And then the book came out June 8th of 2004. Um, basically, all three of these last books were written one after the other simultaneously. I think in the Road to the Dark Tower, on the timeline, they said he finished Wolves of the Call and immediately started uh, book six. So it, it was, you know, he we when we're reading it, it seems like they're all one continuation. And in fact, that's yep. how he was writing them. Yep. Yep. And, you know, obviously, when publishing books, there's the going back and revisions and galleys, et cetera. So there was a, a little bit of a delay uh, published again, same date by both Grant and then Scribner. So a limited edition by Grant, et cetera. And then, uh, the trade paperback came out in 2005, and by that time, the last book of the series had come out. So it wasn't even like hardcover, paperback, the next hardcover. It was hardcover and the next hardcover. Um, one interesting thing is we have a new illustrator like we had have had for all of the books, and his name is Daryl Anderson. And his art is, um, he's an early computer graphics animator. Um, so I think. I read that he got his hands on a early Apple and started playing around with doing graphics in um, and doing his art that way. And unlike most of the artists that we've seen, he does not have a very big artistic online presence. Um, he does have a website, and I'll put that in the show notes for this, uh, but not a lot of other work 
associated with Stephen King, like some of the other artists or even well-known work. Um, one thing that I did find is that he worked on the Johnny Mnemonic movie, so he's got that going for him. Hmm. Maybe he was using the same hard drive that they used in Johnny Mnemonic's brain. Oh, Wasn't it like 100 megabytes or something? <laughs> Crazy amount of memory, I'm sure. <laughs> That's why they needed to use a human brain yeah. to hold all that data. So um, the one thing I did notice about Anderson's work is that in this book, you could tell they're all by the same artist and very much all thematically together. They all seem to have the same color palette and the same sort of look and feel. Not not that the other ones didn't feel that way, but more so in this book than I think in any of the others. Like They're all very dark and gray as you flip through the book. Um, we've also pointed out in the last book that all of these books have had sort of cover pages with a single word on them, and in this one it's reproduction. It seems pretty obvious to me that that is related to the fact that Susanna's going to have a Susanna baby. Susanna bought a Xerox machine? <laughs> There's also a another page before we get into the story that just has a number 19 on it, and then in the lower left-hand corner, number 99. Yep. King's not just fixated on the 19, he's, uh, he's running with the whole 99 thing. Yeah. So unlike with the other books where we've had to talk about other books and movies that are coming around at the same time, King was all in on Dark, Dark Tower at this point. So Dark Tower preceding this, Dark Tower after this, and Dark Tower's on the mind, so... He barely had time for lunch in between these books, let alone another book. Yeah. As somebody who gets caught up on this stuff, this book has a much different structure than the other books. They're, instead of being broken up into chapters, this book is broken up into stanzas, Jay. Yes. I mean, each of the books has had its own unique structure, but this is the first time that King has followed the structure of, a, I don't know, an epic poem. Or, or a legend or history or great tale. And that's something that we have always associated with the term song. So the title is The Song of Susanna. It's the legend of Susanna. It's the, the bard's tale of Susanna, if you will. Yes. Uh, so I, I think that his title accurately reflects his structure. And it's an interesting structure to follow because it's not written in verse. No. So, but it's still broken down into stanzas. As somebody with slight OCD when it comes to this, I will say that it's bothered me that King has not used a consistent way of breaking up these books along the way. Um, you know, we went from, I think, very straight chapters in book one to, I think one of the books was divided up by books and then chapters, and sometimes you get numbers, and sometimes you get subchapters, and sometimes there's no numbers and just spaces, and it it sort of rubs me the wrong way. And if I had it my way, I would be like, you need to have consistency. Use a template, Steven. <laughs> yes. But for this one that's called Song of Susanna, I'm okay with him using stanzas. It's a nice little breakup. And I do like that each stanza is fairly discreet, at least so far in this section, especially where stanza three is all about Trudy Damascus's story and stanza four is all about Susanna and Mia's story, and there's not a lot of overlap between the characters yet in this. The, the stanzas are very discreet about that, which, again, sort of mimics how a legend or a tale would work, where you'd get these like little pieces of it or a verse with, hey, here's this verse that tells this story, and then we'll move on to the next verse later. Yep. And there's also, in structuring it like a, a legend or a, or a tale, the Song of Susanna is... Uh 
somewhat reminiscent of of King's original inspiration, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. Yes. Which is written in verse and is a an epic poem. And uh I I, I like the fact that in all of King's um genre mixing and explorations of story he owed it to his overarching motif of stories about stories to mm. i think follow this structure at some point or or at least you to the epic poem a little bit at, at some point and um if it in any way hamstrings his ability to tell the story he wants to tell because of its structure um it's probably best to do it in this book rather than the final book. Yeah. So I think that's also a good choice as well. Yeah. And we're putting this as structure, but you know, we could think about it another way. Early on, we talked about how each of the early books seem to be a different genre. I mean, you, yeah. could, you could almost make the argument that this is another genre, um, mm -hmm. you know, like a tale, like you said, like Child Roland or The Legend of Arthur or Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where we have this story in verse it's just a, another way of, of genre-ing it up and, and playing around with that genre. Yes. So the other way that the song part of Song of Susanna comes into play a little bit is that each, and I'm assuming this is going to carry on for the rest of the book, but each chapter ends with um, a part of the Kamala song that we first learned about in Wolves of the Kala. And there's the stave and the response. Um, and it's continuing that song that we heard bits and pieces of throughout Wolves of the Kala that sort of, I don't know, would you say summarizes the chapter in some way or relates back to some of the events of the chapter? Yeah, it definitely connects to what just took place in the, the stanza that you just read. And the way you just phrased that or framed that begs the question, do you think that these are the official standard lyrics to the Kamala song, or is the Kamala song sort of a free-flowing, sort of whatever's on your mind type of thing, and you just find a way to to fit what you want to say into this this structure of a rhyming scheme? And I, I kind of think it's more the latter, but... I would agree with you, Jay. I think there was that weird little aside in Wolves of the Kala where we got sort of like a two-page... Um, omniscient narrator where they talked about the word Kamala and what it meant in that part of Midworld and how they said, you know, Kamala is a word that could mean whatever you want it to mean. It could mean sex. It could mean the harvest. It could mean coming together. It could mean the universe. It could mean anything. And it just sort of adapts as necessary. And I sort of see the Kamala song as that as well, as something that adapts to the situation or it's like an old blues song. And Stephen King is obviously somebody who who knows the blues and knows his rock music. It's just sort of hey, I can riff on this and make it fit what I want and add lyrics as I want. And you even get that sense the way that this song is written that is very much done in a vernacular um, mm -hmm. where, you know, words are cut off and it's very slangy um, that you, you can almost sense that, hey, somebody's just riffing on this and making it up as it goes along to comment on what's happening in the story. So I don't think it's, I don't think there's any official Kamala song to your point. That's fair. Reminds me of uh, Stephen King was in that rock band for a while. What was it called? The Rock Bottom Remainders? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. Was it was him and a couple other authors who I don't think they were the greatest of musicians, but they had fun performing. I think it was him and Amy Tan was in it and forget who, what other authors were in it, but sounded sounded like fun. I think he had fun with it. Did you ever hear any of, of his music? I, I never listened to any of it. I have not heard any of the music. Although I had, I saw there was a a book about the history of the band that you could get on Amazon for a while. Um, 
but I think it's it's out of print and only used copies are available, so it's sort of pretty expensive. So I've never gotten my hands on it. Called the girl who loves Stephen King's rock band. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was what it was called. <laughs> Stephen King, Amy Tan, Dave Barry, Robert Fulham, and Matt Groening, and eight other rock and authors. Matt Groening. That's what it now says. I'm, I'm even more interested. I don't know if I've ever heard Matt Groening speak. I have. Unless he, unless he does a voice on The Simpsons that is uncredited or something. I actually met Matt Groening on the Ohio State campus in 2012, I think. And I had him sign one of my Life in Hell books. And he nice. commented, he commented like, whoa, this is, a, this is old. I'm like, yeah. I've had it for quite a while. It's followed me around lots of places. That's awesome. The book was called Midlife Confidential, The Rock Bottom Remainders Tour America with Three Chords and an Attitude. No, I don't want to listen to the music. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back to the topic at hand. Like many of the other Dark Tower books, the first few chapters are just sort of to set up the characters in their different location and get things going. One of the things that sort of ties together multiple chapters here is the beam quake, which yeah. adds to the whole what's happening in Midworld and how does this affect the tower and what does this all mean? And a beam quake is not something that is, it's a it's an event that we're not, have never been introduced to before. Yeah. And I'm sure has been apparent in our previous episodes, or as you've gotten to know my levels of interest in various parts of the story, is that I'm really interested in the world building. I I want to know the lore, and this beamquake thing seems a little tacked on. Mm. I I find it fascinating that these beams that hold up the dark tower and therefore help to support the structure of the tower and the multiverse and all that stuff if one of those should break it would break all at once and that every world that is connected through the the axle of the dark tower um would feel that so i guess inventing this thing is great but when roland explains it it seems so matter of fact to him and it seems like something that it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a, a beam quake. Don't you guys know about beam quakes? <laughs> I've been talking about beam quakes all the time. You know, a beam quake all, you know, it happened once when I when at the fall of Gilead, and there was another one that I think, and, that, you know, and, like, you never mentioned beams until book three, and <laughs> then uh, we wait till book six to introduce the beam quake idea? I, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, I guess I'm a, I'm a little frustrated by the fact that this is an idea that's being introduced so late in the game. Mm. But maybe that's not such a big deal. I don't know. Yeah, for me, it really seemed like a type of MacGuffin. Like, I think that in the last book, we talked about how there was this deadline. Like, we knew the wolves were coming in 30 days, and we knew what date they were going to come, and so we've got this actual deadline that we need to race towards and prepare mm -hmm. by. And I sort of got the sense that King has just added another timer onto the quest for the dark tower to keep to keep the characters moving along and i'm not even sure if they needed that because there's already enough sort of timed events that they need to figure out right like Susanna's having the baby 
very quickly, potentially today, potentially in the next couple hours. So we need to find yep. her because we're afraid the baby's going to potentially eat Susanna. So there's one sort of time piece that we're worried about. So we've also got the time piece of we need to save the tower from Balazar and not letting that lot fall in his hand. So we need to reach tower and, and get that all figured out. So there's all these, these two things. And we always know that Roland's trying to get to the tower. So I guess now it's just, Hey, now we've got another thing. There's this beams we have to worry about. And if they're all falling and we, we might be down to two, um, somehow, somehow he knows that Roland does. That's another piece of interesting lore that we didn't know. Like, Oh yeah, there's only two left now. That's the rumor at least. And it was like, well, where are you hearing this rumor from? Yep. That's why it feels like maybe these things feel tacked on and they feel uh, unearned. That's like information that Roland didn't have and now now magically has. And if you can explain that away or forgive it because we find out later that this is a MacGuffin and it kind of doesn't matter, it's just there to drive the plot a bit, then it feels even more artificial and even more unnecessary. And if it is really important, if it turns out that this information is vital to the plot and vital to how things might turn out, then shouldn't it have been important for more of the story? Shouldn't Roland have said in book one, I sure wish I could find one of those beams. It could lead me to the tower. <laughs> Everyone knows about the beams. And heck, a few years back when one of the beams broke and at the same day that Gilead fell, there was a beam quake. I remember that. It was a big fucking deal, <laughs> right? Uh, so, but there's none of that. And setting aside, okay, I get it. King's inventing this as he goes along. But he went back and he retconned so much of book one. He could have introduced a bit more beam stuff. He did add a tiny, tiny hint of it when he shows that there, the clouds are moving yes. along the beam when he's in Tull, but that's as close as he comes. Yeah. And it is apparent that Roland himself is ignorant of this phenomena. Yeah. So. You know, I mean, this gets back to, I, I wouldn't say this is a problem for me, but we talked in previous episodes about it's really not clear to me what's going to happen when they get to the dark tower. Like what does, what does Roland have to do to save the dark tower? Does he have to, does he have to hug it? Does he have to rebuild it? Does he have to put new mortar on the blocks? Does he like what, what needs to happen there? Like, um, and I think part of the, what you're getting at, what I'm thinking about is that book one, I think we both can agree was very, philosophical in its ideas of what the dark tower was you know we had that great imagery of when the man in black sent roland on that vision quest right where he yeah he saw everything and it was like the whole universe and you're you're thinking about the, the problem is size and all these pieces and so it was very a philosophical but now it's like the end of highlander yeah but now that we're getting to the <laughs> <laughs> the quickening overpowers me <laughs> it's exactly i like am the... everything i know everything <laughs> greetings highlander <laughs> my, my sean connery impression which i'm not allowed to do uh, my wife has forbidden it but since she doesn't listen to the podcast you're I'm, safe i'm safe um but now that we're getting to the end game there needs to be 
more concrete. It has to move from the philosophical to the specific. And yeah. that's where we're getting these, here's what's happening. There's a place called Thunderclap that you need to go to, and it seems to be held by these robots that we, the wolves of the Kala, and now there's the, this beam quake, and it's the result of these beams going away, and if all the beams fall, then the tower is going to fall. So we're, I think it's just sort of a consequence of moving to that specific nature that something's going to happen when they get to the tower, and we need to push people along towards that and show that there are consequences that are happening in the world as a result of this. This is the way I'm thinking about it. I know, I think you've called yourself a lore whore in the past, and I, for me, I've been less about the lore whore and more about the the character. So when I see this stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, that's sort of interesting, but I'm trying not to get too caught up in it because I do think it's yeah. just a way of moving the story along. And I, I think I think maybe another way of stating what you just said is that the closer we get to the end of the story, the less magic can be involved be and it has to be more real, right? So when we have that, that, you know, mind bending view of all of the universe and the quickening overpowering Roland, it's, um, then it's all magic. It's all fantasy and it's vague and it's, yeah. But now it, like you said, it's this is brick and mortar stuff. We actually have to go to a physical place and maybe fix a physical problem. And that's just not going to seem as magical because you got to get out the trowel and the and the mortar and or, I don't know, or your Qui-Gon finding out about midichlorians and doing analysis on people's bloodstreams. I mean, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. But the idea of the beam quakes interesting. Um, and it does move our, it does give a sense of urgency to our characters and moves them along. Yeah, if nothing else, it gives us the imagery of like guy wires and a, on like a, a radio transmitter antenna. And now, you know, there were six pairs of, of beams or I guess six, 12. How the hell does this work? It's a circle of, of six beams that crisscross at the tower, right? Yes. So there are 12, 12 separate points. guy wires. And when one of them breaks, that's just fewer guy wires holding this tower, keeping the tower from falling over. And now we're down to apparently two. And I'm picturing a, one of these like radio towers with just one guy wire. I'm like, that, that one guy wire doesn't do anything no. anymore. So I think if you have fewer than two, you basically have none. And... So we're we are trouble. at we're at, we're in trouble. We're at the deadline. Yeah, so. I I I I thought of it more of like a game of kerplunk, where the tower was the kerplunk, and as they're pulling out the the sticks or the beams, the marbles are all going to fall down. Mm. And then whoever is at the top of the tower will end up at the bottom of the tower. I guess they'll come rolling out the front so. door. There you go. Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. Kerplunk, kerbluey. So one thing that I found fascinating in this section, Jay, was stanza three, where we are introduced to a character named Trudy Damascus. Who... I've been wondering when we were going to finally get to Trudy. I mean, took she... six books and I, I'm finally like, we got to spend a lot of time with Trudy Damascus. Yeah. And I have a f sort of feeling like we might not spend any more time with her after this, but who knows? <laughs> um but we get a whole chapter or a whole stanza devoted to Trudy Damascus, who is in New York City in 1999, which is where Mia slash Susanna have ended up. 
And Trudy is a really sort of straightforward lawyer slash accountant who works at this firm, a big firm. She's by the books, all the facts, ma'am. And then all of a sudden she sees a woman come pouring out of literally nowhere, thin air, air and just sort of materialize in front of her and even grow legs. And she is totally freaked out about this. Um, And as a reader, we're sort of freaked out because we've spent, what, 80% of these books in Roland's head or in a close third-person version of Roland's head and the other pieces really in Jake or Eddie or Susanna's head and Mm -hmm. very occasionally other characters, but not to the extent that we've seen in Trudy. Like, we get a whole chapter of Trudy's thoughts and words and actions around this appearance of Mia. Yeah, King has done something like this a couple of other times. For example, the flight attendant who's on the plane with Mm, Eddie in book two. We spend a whole bunch of time in the flight attendant's perspective. We are given a flashback of hers to her training for being a flight attendant and how to deal with problematic passengers on the plane. We get a flashback to her interactions with other flight attendants, with the pilot. We get a lot of that character's like internal perspective and thoughts and reaction to the scenes but that wasn't like a whole chapter of the book right. it was you know like what four or five pages but we still got that we king needed to have another person experiencing what was going on so that we could see what was happening from outside of eddie's perspective and outside of Roland's perspective we needed a yet another character so king invented one or yeah. at least he i mean he invented all these characters but he he really invested in one of these characters who are basically just ordinarily in the background of these scenes yeah and king is masterful at this my time with the flight attendant just like my time with trudy damascus is enjoyable and interesting because King's really good at what he does, even though these characters really only serve that purpose. They are another form of narrator that gives us, the reader, insight that we couldn't otherwise have without King changing the structure of his storytelling. Yep. And Trudy's last name is a giveaway too, right? Her last name is Damascus, and she's a character who has really had the scales fall off of her eyes. She has seen what she thought was a logical, normal world, and all of a sudden it's been affected by magic, and it's really thrown her faith in a loop. Like, she's not sure what to take from this. But I guess the bigger question is, why Why do we even need this character to do this? And I think you hinted at it a little bit. It gives us another perspective. And for me, it was because Susanna and Mia are really unreliable narrators at this point. And more to the point, we're in 1999 New York City. And Trudy's probably the closest to representing the reader at this point, mm-hmm. because this book came out, you know, a few years after 1999, 2004. So, you know, five years later, you know, written three years later. And I think really she's supposed to help represent us. Like, what would it be like if somebody jumped into our world? Um, Susanna is somebody who is a stranger in this world. She is from she knows Ni- New York. She but knows she's New York, from, like- but... 33 years or something. Yeah, like 60-something was the last time she was there. And really, it wasn't even Susanna. It was Odetta. 
and Detta. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like she, it, she's a stranger in the strange land, but he, Mia is even more so, right? She's another personality, but she's sort of has an idea of New York City, but not even like she doesn't even know what a telephone is. Like she mm-hmm. is putting all these pieces together. So to get that sense of alienation, I think we need to have somebody who's grounded. And that person is Trudy Damascus to help us with that. Yeah. Even if somehow like Eddie or Jake had gone through with Susanna and we could get it from their perspective, King would have to exert so much more energy with their like, oh, wow, this is nothing like the New York I remember. Right. And so it would it would exhaust us as the reader with all that extra. It's actually, at the end of the day, probably simpler and more straightforward and efficient to invent some other character out of whole cloth and give us a whole bunch of, give us a whole chapter or a whole stanza uh, dedicated to her, her experiences and how she feels and how this <laughs> ruins her entire life ultimately. Yeah. Just because she happened to see something that she can't accept as reality and then can't get anybody to believe actually happened. Yep. But we needed that. It was it was almost like she was sacrificed at the altar of good storytelling for our benefit as the reader so that we could uh, move on with the story in a, in a good and entertaining way. But her character is destroyed by this experience. <laughs> but it does, I mean, it does tell us how good of a writer that King is because I truly believe her as a character just as much as I do Eddie or Jake or Roland. Like she seems fully alive. I, I could picture her. I could see, oh, this is the type of person she's like. I know what that type of person is like. I mean, the the fact that he has the ability to do that sort of at the drop of a hat and to create a, a fully formed character and, and we could say, oh, yeah, I know what type of person that is. Mm-hmm. That gives you a sense of what a good storyteller King is in creating characters and why people are so memorable, even if they are just there for, you know, we, we remember that flight attendant pretty well, even though that happened five books ago. Um, yep, and we'll remember Trudy Damascus, I'm sure, as well when she doesn't appear the rest of the novel, but or the novels. But I'll always remember Trudy Damascus. Hey, you know another uh, possible meaning to her last name is there's a type of steel or a type of metal craft for knife blades called Damascus, and mm. it is a style that is has many many layers. So, do you think that? calling her Damascus is saying that she has many layers and is therefore a complex and fully formed character. I like it. Even if it doesn't mean that, the fact that you're able to put that on it makes it make sense. Yeah. And now it makes me hungry from some six layer dip. Mm, dip. <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked about a lot of the other characters. I think it's time we spend some time with Susanna and Mia because really she is the key to the story, Song of Susanna, and is really driving the action at this point. It's her escaping through the doorway that has caused all this fuss and has really made everybody else sort of freak out because she's become the priority because they need to help her in some way. Yeah. And we've gone five or six books now saying or complaining (laughs) that King keeps forgetting about Susanna. King keeps giving her short shrift and... I certainly hope this isn't the only chapter that we get for her in this book. Yeah, so we read four chapters, and the first two are all men except for Rosalita, who adds a little bit of stuff, yeah. but it's mostly the Manny and 
and the quartet discussing how can we find Susanna. Then we get to chapter three, which is Trudy Damascus. And then we get to stanza four. <laughs> All right, here's Susanna. That's right. So we're a third of the Finally. way through the book. Yep. Um, so it's interesting because when the Wolves of the Kala ends, there's this point where Mia is starting to take control and Susanna is going into labor. And Susanna makes a deal with Mia that basically is, let me get through this fight. Let me help my friends. And after that, you can be in control and we'll have this baby. And that's what happens mm -hmm. is Mia takes control after during the celebration and then they run off, we assume, to have the baby. But Mia is not totally in control for whatever reason, whether it's the fact that they've moved into New York and she's in this strange land or whether it's Susanna who's able to still have enough power to bring herself to the forefront she's able to fight back against mia here um and that is interesting because they're sort of at cross purposes on what needs to happen like susanna realizes having this baby isn't going to be the best move but at the same time she realizes we're going to have to have this baby at some point a way of thinking about this just occurred to me and the movie they live is that what it's called? Yes. I'm here to do two things, chew bubblegum and kick some ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. So in the movie They Live, the aliens look like normal people unless you put on the special sunglasses and then you can see their true appearance. I kind of feel like that Mia is like the view you get through the special sunglasses when mm. you look at Susanna. When without sunglasses, Susanna looks like Susanna Dean, she's not pregnant. There is no chap. And it's Susanna who's in control. You put on the Rowdy Roddy Piper sunglasses, and now it's Mia. Now it's a, a woman who looks like Mia, has legs, and is, a, is like about to have the baby. And it's almost like because Mia is in some way, just another facet of the many identities within Susanna. It's kind of like she's not real in a sense. Mm. Like, and therefore her pregnancy is a manifestation of something that maybe isn't real. So it's, I think like if Susanna had, if the individual identity of Susanna had even more power, had even more influence, was completely in control, she could almost like will away this other identity and the pregnancy that is connected to it. Because in some ways, like, or like maybe another way of looking at it is like when um, sometimes if you're bitten by a poisonous insect or something like that, your body will encapsulate the poison under your skin rather than letting it spread. And this pregnancy is is kind of like that. It's been encapsulated by, or or like the pearl has formed around mm -hmm. uh, around this this chap, and that pearl is the identity of Mia. And if you could just eject the pearl, then Mia goes away, the chap goes away, the pregnancy doesn't exist, and the the baby's never born. And I kind of feel like because of the the fantastical elements of the story and how this is structured, like that's almost like a possibility. I don't know that, you know, like, like you almost wish, like, couldn't Susanna just exert that much more willpower and just like, nope, I'm like actually going to separate from this identity and 
go back to being me. Yeah. And they talk a little bit about this in the section where they mention that each of the Katet has gained powers of mm. some sort. So Jake has the touch. He's able to send and receive messages from other people and, and have some sense of um, telepathy in some ways. And Eddie, they say, can make talismanic objects. So he carved the key that was able to open the door earlier. And um, mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder if the ring that he's carved for Susanna that gets left behind is an important piece of that. I, you know, they, Ooh, it, it, gets, interesting. it, gets, yeah. it gets mentioned a couple times and I don't know if it's going to be important or not, but that's something else that he's carved uh, a ring that didn't fit her originally. So she wore it around her neck and then leaves behind. And then the power that Susanna has is this ability to, I don't know if it's imagine things into existence or create realities like you're saying, or, you know, use that power to sort of form ideas or separate ideas. But when she's worried that the labor's coming on fast and that the baby's coming, she imagines the Dogen as Jake described it to her, as this control panel that she's able to mm -hmm. manipulate. And, and, you know, because she's uh, a woman of the 60s, her idea of what a control panel would look like is very much informed by that. So, you know, it's got these radio dials and the switches and it's like, oh, I'm going to switch the labor switch to to off and move this over to low and 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 turn this dial and that's her way of trying to control the fact that this baby's not coming and it like you said if she is she powerful enough to take that next step and separate it we don't know but she's at least able to tone down that pregnancy to give them more time yeah she might be that powerful and just not realize it which would be cool moderately fascinating idea yeah but i i thought that that was a neat touch but the one interesting thing about that is she's able to picture this control panel but she doesn't seem to have total control over it or there's some other piece that's moving in so she tries to imagine it and she doesn't imagine it with the north central positronics on it but that's the name that comes up on this imaginary control panel and i don't know if that's her subconscious bleeding in or if there's other things happening there again that might be moderately fascinating i kind of took that as sort of like a representation of sort of the reality or the like like she could imagine a dial that says i can you know number of minutes i can hold my breath right and she could turn it all the way up but eventually there's a point where it doesn't matter how far she turns that dial if she holds her breath longer than that she suffocates mm. so there's a there is a physical limitation to what her mental construct is is making into these this imagination that she converts to reality construct still has some limits and part of that limit is the underlying reality which is like oh maybe the dogen was made by north central positronics and that was part of what jake described so that has to be part yeah, of it that's yeah. part of it so we can't talk about Susanna without also talking about eddie and yeah i sort of got this right a few episodes ago we talked about how surprised we were when Roland approached Eddie and said, hey, Susanna might be a problem because she's pregnant. And we thought at first, oh, Eddie's going to totally freak out about this and take Susanna's side. But he was mm -hmm. ultimately okay with it and said, ah, I understand. The tower always has to come first. And yep. you and I were sort of like, wow, that like Eddie's totally bought into it much like Roland has. And he might be willing to sacrifice Susanna for the tower. but." 
in these early chapters, we see that that's not the case. And I said a couple episodes, well, we've seen Eddie talk the talk, but will he walk the walk? And we're now at the point where we see maybe he's not willing to walk the walk for the tower because he has said to Roland, he's putting Susanna's safety ahead of the tower. Yeah. And I believe his exact words were to Roland, the rose is more important than everything. Yes. Including Susanna. And now he's saying Susanna is more important than the tower. Now, to me, the rose and the tower are, if not one and the same, they're basically two ends of the same line. Yes. Or something along those lines. Like it's that axle upon which all creation, you know, revolves around or rotates about. And so you can't, you can't dismiss the rose and chase the tower or vice versa. So, but I think that this is akin to Eddie prioritizing Susanna over the tower, which he clearly says. And yeah, I mean, when it came down to it, it was easy for him in an abstract way to say, yeah, nothing is more important than the rose, man. Don't worry <laughs> about it. I got you. And then as soon as, as soon as Susanna is actually in danger, and I was like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm going after my wife. Yeah. So um, never mind that tower thingy that you keep talking about. <laughs> That's still an abstract idea for me. I have yeah. not actually seen the tower, so I, I have seen my wife, yes. Oh, and these bean quakes that you suddenly just all of a sudden remembered to tell us about? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. But it is an interesting shift from Eddie as we've seen him go back and forth on this. And um, for him to prioritize it, it, how that will play out, I don't know. But the fact that it's changed from the last book to this book sort of brought that to my attention here. Yeah. And I, I don't think this is like an evolution of King's representation of eddie as a character i mean as we mentioned at the top of this episode king wrote this book five minutes after he wrote the last book so he didn't forget that eddie said that no and i think it's a very this is the character that eddie is right eddie cares about people like eddie's always Mm -hmm. cared about people i mean that might be one of his faults like even when his brother henry was treating him like shit he still cared about his brother um Mm -hmm. and Ultimately, that's what brings him into a naked gunfire fight with Balazar's goons in book two, is the fact that he cares about his brother so much, um, he's willing to risk almost anything for him. Yes. Um, So I don't think it's, like you said, I don't think it's a change in Eddie's character. It's just a manifestation of it that is realistic. I mean, we even questioned it last time and we said, really? Because Eddie hasn't bought into it before. Why is he now? And we hadn't seen him walk the walk, so. Jay, we ready to move to fun stuff? Yes, we are. I'm always ready for fun stuff. Jay, I do not have a lot of fun stuff in this chapter. I mean, I sort of got a Empire Strikes Back vibe around this. Things are not looking well for our quartet and um, a lot of introductory stuff here. And we've talked about some of that, but I, I did not have a, little, a lot of fun stuff. So why don't you start here? I did not have a lot of fun stuff either, but... I think the most enjoyable moments in this section of the book were all of the times that the identity of Detta manifested herself and basically put Mia in her place. Hmm. I think Susanna, as an identity, is a very strong person and very capable of a lot of things. She is the one who is a gunslinger, but it's the downright nastiness that Detta has that. Uh, I think Susanna has too much kindness in her 
to be as harsh as she needs to be to really control Mia, at least at first. And every time Detta came forward and told Mia to shut up or told Mia to quit it, I've never been more pleased to spend some time with Detta as when <laughs> Detta has put Mia in her place over and over again in this section of the book. Every other time Detta's been around, it's been scary or unpleasant <laughs> or like dangerous. Yes. You know, she's she has been in, in some sense a villain of, of the story. And now it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember Detta. Detta's actually kind of awesome. So. <laughs> So anyway, that was that's that was probably the the most uh, most fun I've had in this section. Yep, yep. My favorite part was in the Trudy Damascus chapter um, when Trudy's pretty sure she's going insane. The cop doesn't believe her. Anyone she tells the story to is just sort of like, "Yeah, okay, Trudy." And mm -hmm. there's probably nothing worse than realizing you saw something and having no one else believe you. Like I could. Like that would be a fear of mine to know that yep. to know that I think I'm perfectly sane because I saw this, even if it's unbelievable, and not a single person will believe me. I think that that would be what would drive you insane. The fact that people are questioning because there's nothing you can do about that, and that's how Trudy feels. And she ends up going back to where she saw Susanna come through the door, and it just so happens to be at the corner of Forty Second and or 46th and 2nd Street. And while she's there and she's like, I know something happened here. I know what I saw. And there's another person there. And it's a person we've met before. We don't have a name for him, but he's somebody who, what, 20 years earlier, would come mm -hmm. to this location with his bad acne because he heard music coming from this empty lot. And it's the lot where the rose was. And now his acne has cleared up because he knows that there's something special about this place. And it's the acne guy from the one of the yeah. from the Todash scene earlier on. So uh, it yeah. was good to see him again, and I think it gives potentially maybe Trudy a little bit of hope that hey, I'm not totally crazy. I, something is strange about this place, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good one. It was nice to see see uh, acne guy again, and also it it helped to connect the time frame that where we are with Trudy in 1999 to the time frame where we were when we first met Acne Guy in the was it the 80s or something yeah but um yeah it's just like it tells us like well this is the same world this is the same place this isn't just another version of of this in another time or or it, this is the same place it it that character anchors those two places or connects those two places in a firm way and I like the connection you're making that maybe, maybe there's some tiny shred of hope for Trudy to not completely lose her sanity because Acne Guy acknowledges that there is something special and magical about this, this one block in New York and that, you know, maybe what she saw happen too. Although he is a little scared of her when she starts saying, I really saw this. And he's like, well, it cleared up my acne. I didn't see freaking ghosts come through magical doors and sort of... <laughs> steps Girl away legs. from her but i'm sure that that uh <laughs> i'm sure that happens a lot in uh, new york city from my understanding of what that city is like there's crazy people everywhere right yeah all the time well speaking of new york uh one of the characters uh, along the way in this section mentions that they are having a chocolate egg cream which is a fountain drink that 
was, I believe, invented somewhere in New York City and has long been a favorite drink of people in New York City. I don't know how widespread it is outside of New York, but I realized after reading this that I haven't had one in like mm. years and years. And as soon as I read about it, it all just came like back to me. And now I really want one. And I still haven't had a chance to have one. I really would like to have a chocolate cream. They're delicious. If you haven't had one, go find a place that'll sell you one. Maybe a Greek diner or something like that, wherever you are, have a chocolate cream. It's both it's basically chocolate syrup, a little bit of milk, and seltzer water. And it's delicious. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 6 of the Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stanzas 5 through 7. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Time to get rid of the whoobie.